0: Church, happy Thanksgiving! Good morning. Good morning. I hope you all are doing well. I hope you uh, didn't have to shovel too much like I did this morning. I was uh, out there cleaning it up so that no cat. We we live on the corner, so the snow plow comes right by and just dumps it all right there. Sometimes as I'm shoveling, but you know I let it go. Well, I'm uh, glad to be worshiping with you. If you're new with us this morning, you've joined us on an exciting week. We're going to be doing child dedications this morning. Celebrating what God's doing in the lives of families. Uh, If you are new with us, I just want to let you know we have a gift for you. It's really important for us. We would love to meet you, get to know you. Uh, Even if you're passing through, we're glad that you're worshipping with us. So do stop by our welcome desk and get that gift. At Chapel Street, we are fond of saying here that we want to be a place where you can experience grace, grow in your faith, and be challenged to make an impact right where you are for God's kingdom. Uh, and so that's our heart at the deepest level of everything we do when when we're preaching God's word when we're worshiping together we want to experience God's grace we want to grow in our faith and we want to be compelled to go out and live for him in the world uh, as we get started this one i just want to highlight a couple of things christmas season i'm sure life is really busy for you guys it's busy for us and there's a couple of things going at church i want to make sure you guys are aware of the first is a, another kind of little gift for you this christmas season It's our neighboring magazine. This is something that we create every Christmas just to kind of give you as a family an opportunity to engage in God's word together. So there's some devotions in here, some creative activities for you to do with the kids. Uh, And this is something great that you can kind of use for the whole season and follow along with our um, sermon series that we're doing at Advent. Uh, So do pick one of these up. They're totally free. It doesn't cost anything. They're right on the table on your way out. And I would love for you to benefit from this and some of the different things that have uh, been put in here. The other thing I wanted to mention this morning is you'll notice that we're starting to get the Christmas decorating done. We've got some trees up. And one of those trees in the lobby is actually something unique and uh, important. It's called our giving tree. And every season at Christmas here at North Aurora, we want to be a chapel on our street. We want to be a place that makes an impact. And so we partner with uh, Schneider Elementary across the street uh, and with North Aurora Care Home to gather a list of gifts for people in need this Christmas season. So if you stop by that giving tree, you'll see that there's some uh, cards on there that give you uh, an item that you can go and pick up and then bring back here. And that's going to be delivered to a family in need, either across the street at the school or at the care home. It's something invaluable that we do and really, I think, captures the heart of what Christmas is. It's the season where we remember God's gift to us. And so as a church, we want to replicate that in the world. We want to be a church that brings gifts to others. So please, if you can, if you want to be involved As many of you as possible, if you could stop by our giving tree and pick something up, uh, and it'll give you all the instructions there on what to do, you just bring it back here to church, and we'll wrap that up and make sure it gets delivered to the family that needs it. Uh, But a huge blessing for families, so please do stop by. Last thing I want to mention with you is uh, this Friday we have a family movie night, The Star. I'm not going to capture the quality of announcement that Pastor Bruce had last week on this one, where he had his Snuggie on stage. I'm not willing to do that, okay? As, as ridiculous as I am, Snuggies are beneath me. But maybe they're not beneath you, so please do come on Friday with you, Snuggie. We're going to empty the chairs out of here. We'll have popcorn. We'll have a great time. This is just a chance for families to come together uh, and, and enjoy watching a movie that, that tells the story of Jesus, uh, and we can remember the, the kind of reason for the season together as a church family. And even if you don't have kids, it's a great chance for us to be together as a church family. There's going to be plenty of time to fellowship together and just enjoy time. So I do want to invite you, would love for you to be here. The one thing I would ask you is if you could register for me, just so we have an idea of how many people are coming. And you can do that at chapelstreet.church slash the star, or you can stop by our welcome desk as well, just to, to get any more information on that that you need. Well, if you would stand with me this morning, we're going to jump into worship together. And This last week, we've been celebrating together being thankful and you know every week at church what our heart is is to remember the great God who's loved us the great things that he's done for us and the great things that he calls us to and that's a reason to be thankful every week so I'm going to pray for us and just coming out of this season of thankfulness that our hearts would be centered on Christ and the great gift that he is to us so let's pray together Father thank you for this chance as a church family to be together to be in your presence together and to be reminded of the great reasons we have to be thankful in your son because of his great love for us, the great work that he did on our behalf. God, as we sing this morning, as we come into your word, God, I pray that you would renew our hearts, Lord, to see you and to know you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. get rudely awakened to the fact that I have now moved into uh, a very particular generation of people um, meaning that the world that I live in is now very different than the world that my kids live in and I was I was awakened to this, that this last week when we were all sitting together as a family eating dinner and uh, Janae's phone was on vibrate and it started ringing somewhere but we didn't know where it was we could just hear it buzzing so Janae gets up to go uh, and get the phone and I chose this moment to tell my children about this prehistoric device that used to be in every home in America. Now, I I used to have a phone almost exactly like that, and I remember thinking that because it had the screen, it was very high-tech, right? But I'm telling the kids about this, thinking like, oh, you know, it's just a fun story because not many people have house phones anymore. So I'm telling them, did you know, that's how it used to be all the time. It used to be eating dinner, you'd hear the phone get off, and someone would have to go and answer the phone because it was somewhere in the house specifically. And Jonathan, uh, my eight-year-old, was looking at me with this kind of look of, like, uh, uh, just being so perplexed by this. And he said, well, what, what would you do if you were out of the house and someone needed to get a hold of you? I said, well, they wouldn't get a hold of you. You had to come home and, and just check your voicemail. And then I had to explain voicemail to him. But I realized even at eight years old, Jonathan is now living in a totally different world than the one most of us grew up in because technology now is is moving at such a fast pace. Jonathan can't think of a world in which there wasn't constant communication available to him, no matter where he is, even at eight years old, he understands that if someone needs to get mom or dad or if we're out somewhere, the the grandma can get a hold of us. Other people can call us anytime, day or night. They can text us, they can message us. Can you imagine if we'd lived in the nineties when the pandemic happened, what we would do without being able to contact each other? without having things like FaceTime and all these other avenues. Things that, for Jonathan, he will never know a world outside of them. Now, my question for us this morning is, what kind of world of communication do we live in with God? Are we living in the limited 90s world of communication, which we can only talk to God at certain times? Or are you guys living in the world that God intends for us, in which you have unlimited communication with Him? where you can't conceive of a time in your life where he wasn't available to talk to you, to listen to you, and to speak back to you. Many of us, even those of us who have grown up in the church and have talked about prayer and have talked about the Bible, we still, I think, live in this world of limited communication. As we've been reading this letter, maybe you have felt along the way the kind of absence of a conversation with God. All these things that James charges us to, these these ways of living that we are to embrace and to cling to, And yet you know that there's something missing. And James knows that too. And so he closes his letter talking about prayer, reminding us that actually a faith that works is dependent on a prayer life, on having unlimited open communication with God. And actually that what God desires for us is to speak with him in good seasons and in difficult seasons. So I want to come to these final words of James. And I want to remind ourselves, as we kind of look back over everything that we've talked about for the last few weeks, as everything that James has charged us to, I want to remind us of the importance of coming to God, speaking with God, sharing our hearts with Him. I want to look at three things that James's closing remarks highlight. I think that's the posture of prayer, the experience of prayer, and the result of prayer. So let's talk about the posture of prayer. I mentioned to a couple of you, I think a couple of weeks ago, I recently won uh, three free training sessions at St. Charles Fit. Uh, I did this because we went out to Scarecrow Fest uh, and the St. Charles Fit was giving out raffle tickets to, to win this, but they were giving out candy. And so the children begged me to do it. I was hesitant about entering any competition that would result in me having to do physical work. That's not a gift to me. That's not a prize to be won. But I did it for my children. And, and lo and behold, I did win. I did win, so a few weeks later I'm going down for my first session and uh, I don't know about you, the thing that I hate most about gyms is that there's mirrors on every single wall, now I understand that for you that are dedicated and you know how to work out that's to help you so you can see, I don't like to look at myself because I look like a moron when I'm trying to lift weights right, it doesn't help my insecurities that are already there but what I found out when I'm doing this is we spend an awful lot of time looking in that mirror Because what I learned in those training sessions is, really, what was good for me was not simply to lift a lot of weight and to do a lot of hard exercises, but actually to see how I was doing it, to get a look at at how my body was acting, how I was moving, how I was composing myself. Because not only, if, if I have the wrong posture, not only does it prevent me from getting any advantage out of what I'm doing, it can actually hurt me. I can actually cause more damage to myself. And the same is true about prayer. We need to have a thoughtful posture in the way that we have conversation and communication with God. This is what James says in the uh, closing part of chapter five of his letter. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call to the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. There's Three things to highlight about posture in those first few verses, and the first is this, is that James wants us to pray consistently, consistently. According to Pew Research, over 55 percent of Americans would say that they pray daily. That's a lot. But the question is, how do they pray? What does it look like? When you pray, what does it look like for you to sit down and have a conversation with God? Is it a wish list? Is it crisis management? What does it look like for you to conversate with God? James tells us about a way that he wants the church to be praying. And what he says is he wants it to be consistent. He says, in suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, rejoicing, praise to God. Be in conversation with God about that too. If someone is sick, pray over them. In James's mind, communication with God should always be open and flowing regularly in every season of our life. Paul, the apostle as well, wrote to the Thessalonian church and he told them this in 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. So the view in the early church was that prayer, prayer wasn't just something that took up little pockets of our life, it was something that was consistent, something that happens all the time. Essentially, this is what it was, is that prayer in the scriptures prescribe something that we rejoice in regularly. It prescribes prayer in which we rejoice in the conversation itself and not just the answer. Is that true of us? Do we rejoice in the conversation with God or are we simply looking for an answer? Because James wants to charge us to love the conversation as much as the answer. Think about someone in your life you love to talk to when things are going really well, you wanna share your joys with them. Someone who when things are really hard, you know exactly who you're gonna be calling because they're the person that's there for you. I have a good friend like that, a guy called Kyle Walker, was best man at my wedding. And even though we live now in different places in the US, I love talking to Kyle. When something great is happening in our lives, we'll share that together. When something hard's going on, we pray for one another and talk with one another. Now, if if that's the case with an earthly friend, how much more should that be true of our Heavenly Father who lives in us? Shouldn't he be the one that we rejoice to speak to in good seasons and in bad seasons? That's where a good posture of prayer begins with the the acceptance that God is there for us to speak with us in every season. Maybe God is hard to talk to for you. Maybe when you sit down, you just don't know what you should say. Maybe you have doubts in your heart. And my encouragement to you that is prayer is often simply being in the presence of God. Sometimes you don't need to have words to say. Sometimes you don't need to have the right words to say. You just need to be present with him, to sit with him. Do you make space for that in your life? Do you make space to be with the Lord, to rest with him in his presence, to read the scriptures and embrace his presence with you? Second thing that James highlights here is that we pray in community. We pray consistently, but we also pray in community. What he says is that when people are sick, we want to gather the church together, call the elders, pray for them. And so James envisions as a church in which praying for one another is completely regular and expected. But if you would ask probably the average churchgoer today, do you like to pray with people? They imagine this scenario where they come into church, they're into some little Bible study or a prayer meeting and someone says, would someone like to pray? And everybody's nose goes, not me, I don't wanna do it. Maybe you've been in that exact scenario. You've been asked invited to pray and it's like your worst nightmare. Please don't ask me, right? That wasn't true in, in the beginning. James wanted to set the expectation. No, we pray for one another. That's what we do. When there is someone sick, we share that. We bring everybody together so we can care for that person. We can anoint them with oil, which, by the way, was kind of a a way of practicing medicine in the day. So they were tangibly caring for them, providing some kind of medication, and then they were praying for them together as a church matters deeply to the heart of God that we are that kind of people it's essential in fact for a faith that works that we pray for others and with others we're often much more comfortable with a private prayer life and Jesus did say when you pray pray in secret to your father who sees in secret but when he said that he was talking to Pharisees that loved to be seen by other people and he was trying to correct that he wasn't saying that there shouldn't be a public aspect of prayer in our life as well in fact, in every letter you read in the New Testament, you read of instances where this is happening. So where does that start for you? Maybe this morning, the easiest way for that to start is to simply ask someone to pray for you. Maybe you're still in that place where it's uncomfortable to pray in front of others. And so what you need to do is you need to find a mentor or a friend who can encourage you in that by praying for you. Listen to how they pray for you. Maybe sometimes in in praying for one another, the best thing that we can do is just be honest with each other. It's easy to to check in at church on Sunday and never let anyone inside of your life to see what's really going on, what's weighing you down, what's burdening you. But my desire for our church, and I think God's heart for his church, is that we would never be that kind of place, that this would be a place where you can bring your burdens, you can bring the aches on your heart. That's why we seek to have a prayer team every week at church where we invite people to pray. And we need to grow in this, and I wanna grow in this, and it's because it's close to the heart of God. It matters to him that we pray for one another. Another thing that James highlights here is that he asks us to pray confidently, pray in faith. In verse 15, he has this uh, phrase, he says that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now, that's a hard verse to wrestle with, isn't it? Because so many of us have prayed for people and we haven't seen them healed. And what happens is that we tend to believe in our hearts, well, maybe then we didn't have enough faith. Because it says that the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. So maybe we just didn't have enough faith. that can't be what James means for a couple of reasons first of all there's instances of the Gospels where people would come to Jesus for healing and there's an instance in particular where a man brings his sick child and he says and Jesus asks him do you believe and if you remember this story what the the centurion replies is I believe but help my unbelief what he's saying is I mean I I do but I have doubts I struggle I don't have perfect faith Does Jesus say, well, then I can't do it. I'm sorry, you're gonna have to turn around and try again another day. No, Jesus receives that as as sufficient faith. He says, because you're seeing me. Here's what we need to remember. When James is talking about a prayer of faith, he's not talking about the amount of faith we have or the quality of faith we have. He's asking us what the object of our faith is. What I mean by that is if you were to jump out of an airplane with a parachute on your back Does the parachute's ability to save you depend on how confident you are in it or the fact that you've simply strapped it to your back? Like if I'm falling down through the sky and I'm thinking, oh gosh, I don't know about this parachute thing, man. It might, it it doesn't seem like a great idea. When I pull that ripcord, will the parachute say, sorry, you weren't confident enough in me? No. What matters in that moment is, is my faith in the thing that can hold me? Is my faith in the thing that can, that can rescue me and bring me together? And the truth is, when James is talking about a prayer of faith, he's asking you, what is your faith in? Not how much faith do you have, but what is your faith in? Is it in the God who hears you, who sees you, who knows you, who is mighty to save? That's what James is challenging us to consider. Faith is essential in our conversations with God. Hebrews eleven six six says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. A prayer of faith is a trust in God's character and who he is, that he's one who listens to us. Now we can struggle with what he's doing. We can say, well, why, Lord? Why are you, why are you putting me in these circumstances? Why are you allowing these things to happen? But as long as we remain in the conversation, that is a prayer of faith even if you have your doubts, you can say, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. What's your conception of God when you pray? What's your posture before God when you speak with him? Most of us are putting our trust, not in his character and his goodness, but in a particular outcome. But James wants us to pray with faith that God is good. And, church, I want you to pray and conversate with God knowing that He's good, that He hears you, that He listens to you, that He weeps with you and grieves with you, that He rejoices with you, and that your Father loves to be in conversation with you, even if you are bringing difficult things into that conversation. Your posture in prayer will affect your experience of prayer. Experience of prayer. Might be hard to believe looking at me now, but when I grew up in England, I was called Skeletor by my sister because I was so scrawny and skinny. She used to say to people, it looked like I had two pieces of string hanging out my shorts in the summer." But then I moved to America and things changed quite dramatically. In particular, I moved to Texas where you could get Tex-Mex, right? And that opened up a whole well for me. Up until I moved to Texas, people would often describe me as having a toddler's palate, meaning I only ate what 12-year-olds would eat, right? Or less. But then I moved to Texas and they opened up this whole world of flavor and different things to me. And it literally changed me to, to eat these different things, to get involved in these different worlds. And my experience of food changed completely. When we get into the presence of God, it changes our experience. What God desires for prayer to be is something that transforms us, changes us, grows us, makes us new. Is that what your experience of prayer is? Are your conversations with God a time where you are renewed? transformed this is what james says starts in verse 16 one of my favorite verses in the new testament therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth and then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and earth bore its fruit what James is moving on to, he says, therefore, meaning that if you are a praying church, if you are seeking to pray with one another, with confidence, with faith, then it's going to change you and you are going to become the kind of person who confesses, who experiences healing, and who grows in your understanding of God's calling on your life. First thing that he mentions is confession. And I know we're all really good with that, so we're just going to skip over that, right? Is that good? No, no. I said that that's one of my favorite verses and I meant that, it is. I love reading verse 16. I don't like the front end of it though. I like where it says, so that you may be healed. But when it says confession, it fills me. Even after years of walking with Jesus and having experienced confession in many different settings and situations, it still fills me with a level of trepidation. And it's something that I have to work on because I don't think that God wants me to think of confession that way. He doesn't want me to think of it as as a moment where I'm kind of airing my ugliness so that I might feel bad. It's actually the exact opposite of what God desires. Here's what confession is in, in scripture. Confession is a, is a mix of two Greek words. It's, the, the one word is ex And homo means the same. And logo, logo is, is a derivation of logos, which means to speak. Right? Jesus was the word of God. He was the logos. And so what this really means, what confession really means is to say the same thing. To say the same thing. When God asks us to confess, he's asking us to say the same thing about our sin and to say the same thing about what Jesus has done for us in our sin. Say the same thing about both of those things. Same thing about sin, that it's wrong, that it's destructive, that it's outside of what you were made for. To recognize those places in your life where you need to say the same thing as God about what you're choosing to do, the way that you're choosing to think about others, think about God but also for those who receive confession, for those who hear when people confess to us, we need, and this is so integral, we need to say the same thing about that person as Jesus does. When someone trusts you with hearing their sin, it is essential in that moment that you say the same thing as Jesus, which is what? There is mercy for this, there is grace for this. You can be healed, you can be covered, you can be cared for, you are not rejected. I can't tell you how many people's struggle in church is because people have not said the same thing about their sin that Jesus has. It is deeply destructive to the church and it grieves the heart of God when we don't say the same thing about sin as He has said. Think about your life, where are you wandering? Where is your heart most prone to forget God? Where are you most prone to be resistant to offer forgiveness and grace to others who confess to you? This is an opportunity for prayer in and of itself because you can sit down and say, God, illuminate me. Show me where I'm not saying the same thing as you. It's important that we get this because the second thing that James has shown for us is that if you are experiencing prayer rightly, you'll experience healing. You'll experience healing. He says, confess your sins so that you may feel bad about what you have done. No. Confess your sins so that you can remember you should never ever behave that way. No. No. Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. God's heart in confession is not to shame us or condemn us. Because remember Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We confess our sins so that we can be healed, so that we can be transformed, so that we can be restored. How many of us have carried sin in our life? Hidden sin, things that we fear. If someone knew about this, if someone saw this, it would ruin me. And so we carry that around, we drag that weight around with us for decades sometimes. And God says, let go of that. And let me bring healing to it. Why does he ask them to confess to one another? Right? We would like, well, maybe we'll confess to God, but why do we have to confess to one another? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think, helps us with this. This is what he says in his book, Life Together. He says, a man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God in the reality of the other person. What Bonhoeffer is saying is that when I look into my Christian brother's eyes and I confess my sins, I'm able to see a tangible expression of the love of God in front of me. I'm able to experience the presence of God in the reality of the other person who's filled with the Holy Spirit, who God has entrusted with his spirit to say the same thing to me that he says. I can't tell you how much it's meant to me in moments when I have fallen, when I have sinned, to be in the presence of brothers and sisters in Christ who say the same thing as God, and I can see that. It immediately lifts away from me. It allows healing to take place in my life. Not because they're doing something magical for me or that the healing's coming from them, coming from the Spirit of God, but God is showing me that healing. He's demonstrating that healing in the reality of the person who's hearing my sin. That's why we confess. We're not doing it so that we can earn forgiveness or so that we can be worthy of forgiveness. We will never be worthy of forgiveness, friends, but God offers it to us as a, as a gift of grace and then he invites us to share it in front of other people so that we can experience that. The last thing that I want to highlight in this little section is that true prayer will give you an experience of who God really is and who you really are. He goes on to say that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I love that phrase even in itself before we get to anything that follows it, that it has power as it is working, not after it's worked or once it's complete, but as it is working. The true experience of prayer is that even before you receive an answer, the spirit is doing great work in you. The conversation itself is what is important there. But what he goes on to say is he tells this story about Elijah, who's a man just like us, And he prayed that it would not rain, and it didn't. And then he prayed that it would, and it did. And what he's trying to say is is two things. First, understand who you are. Elijah, we tend to look at as though he's this great, holy man, very different than us. And what James is saying is, no, he really wasn't. There is no person who's ever lived who has been more holy than another. We're all sinners. We're all broken people. We are all on the same level ground in our conversations with God. And yet Elijah saw something different about God. When the Bible calls Elijah righteous, that word righteous simply means right with God. And what we translate that to mean is, oh, so Elijah was morally perfect, he was a good person. But if you read the stories of Elijah, you cannot come to that conclusion. Elijah was as dysfunctional as any of us was. He had doubts, he had fears, he had struggles, he made bad decisions, he had a hot temper sometimes. So when the Bible says that Elijah was a righteous man whose prayers had great power, it can't mean that he was morally perfect. What it means is he understood who God was. He saw him rightly and he allowed himself to be seen rightly by God. That's what a righteous person is. Someone who confesses their sins, who is clear about who they are before God, but someone who embraces who God is. Elijah's prayers were a reflection of the fact that he knew who God is, because what was he praying for? He was praying for the will of God. That story about rain coming and not coming, that was God's work in the, the nation of Israel. It was for his people. Elijah prayed for God's work. How many of us pray for our work and forget all about God's work? How many of us are praying for the circumstances in our life and the things that we wanna happen and neglecting the fact that God has beautiful plans for us, for our neighbors, for our cities, for our world. God invites us to join with Him and that, that by itself is astonishing, isn't it? God does not need you to accomplish anything and yet He invites you to prayer and He uses your prayers the prayers of broken, dysfunctional, sinful, messy people to accomplish great things. Such that Elijah, a man who was just like us, was able to participate in miracles, not because he was great, but because he understood God had great things in store for the world. How many of praying with that conviction? The conviction that believes things that we read in Second Chronicles, 7:14 says, "If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land." Do you believe that? Do you believe that when you pray in faith, that God hears you and that great things can happen, do you pray for your leaders in government and in church and in the workplace that way? Do you pray for your neighbors that way? That neighbor who you are fearful about or frustrated about or anxious about, do you believe that God can do great work in their life if you ask him to? Do you believe in those family members who you feel are far from God? Maybe this Thanksgiving you sat around a table with different things going on in your family and you wondered, well, how could God do anything about this? Well, he can if you pray. He can if you pray. Because Elijah was a person just like you and he prayed and God moved. True experience of prayer will transform you, change you into be the kind of person that believes God has great things in store for the world. I wanna talk real briefly about the result of prayer. Because the result of prayer is that you and I will be transformed, that we will be changed to become a different kind of person. If we stay in conversation with God, if we pray consistently with faith with the other, other people in church, if we confess our sins and we experience healing and we see God rightly, then we are transformed. Such that, this is what James says, he says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth some, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and recover a multitude of sins. Now maybe as we've just read that, you say, okay, well, what's that got to do with being transformed though? What's that got to do with praying and all these other things? And it's, it's true, many points in James' letter, he kind of changes pace very quickly and so maybe this is just an indication, but I don't, I don't think so. I think what James is saying is, this is the kind of person you'll become if you embrace this. Someone who goes after those who, who have wandered and brings them back your heart will become for others, to care about others, for others to know the same truth that you've experienced of God. Do we care for one another such that we are driven to guide each other towards the truth? Here's what he's really saying. is He's saying that faith is not a private affair. It's a community affair. If you've been transformed, you care about the person you sat next to in church. You care about their walk with the Lord. You want them to be encouraged, supported, cared for. Your heart has changed to be for them. You want to see them where they're at. James knows that people in, in the church at this time are struggling. They're going through persecution. They're going through loss. We've talked about it many times in this series, how they're being kind of pressed on financially. They're being pressed on by the Romans, by the Jewish authorities. So he knows that they're struggling and he's saying if people in that place are doubting, if they're walking away from the truth, go after them. He's not saying if there's someone in Bible study who says something a little bit weird, make sure you get them. What he's saying is, if there is people in the church that are wandering away, if their way is changing because they're forgetting who God is, his great grace for them, his love for them, his faithfulness to them, if they're forgetting that, then go after them and draw them back. Remind them, remind them of who Jesus is. This is the heart of God, to care for those that have wandered, to care for those that are doubting. In Luke 15, we get a series of great stories about things that are lost. That are being found. This is how that whole thing starts in Luke 15. Jesus is talking. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The heart of God is for the one, is to leave the 99 for the one, to find those who have wandered from the way, which by the way is all of us in one way or another, to come after us and to draw us back to the Father who loves us, to bring us back. In Jesus' day, there was, there was leaders in the religious circle that had forgotten that that was the heart of God. But if we are a church that prays, who sets our eyes on God, who stays in conversation with Him, then we will become like the kind of people that wanna draw those that have wandered back in, that we wanna care for them. And we're told that it will save them from death because make no mistake, life apart from Christ is death. It's destruction. Jesus goes after the lost because he doesn't want that for them, because he doesn't desire that for them. It's not some ego trip for Jesus so that he can get one more person who says great things about him. It's because Jesus' heart is for those that are dying and are lost, and he wants to draw them back. He wants to protect them. He wants to care for them as a good shepherd. If we look at everything that we've read this morning, and we talk about... Drawing someone in to cover a multitude of sins and we think about praying in all seasons. Who does that sound like? We just travel back through what James has said. He says to the church, pray for one another. Pray in all seasons. Listen to what John says about Jesus. First John 2 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also the sins of the whole world. Church, did you know that this very moment in heaven, Jesus Christ is praying for you by name before the Father? We, we could just stop the service right there and think about that. The Son of God is in heaven, before the Father, in the throne of glory, praying for us, advocating for us, asking, Lord, bless them, care for them, draw them to yourself. In Jesus' context, he's saying, if you sin, if you've fallen, if we confess our sins to one another, guess who's praying for your forgiveness most? It's Jesus, the one who you've sinned against. The one who died because of your sin. He is in heaven praying for your mercy and forgiveness. That's Jesus. Even in his earthly life, he prayed for us regularly. He prayed over people, he prayed with people, he prayed to God about people. And he continues to do that now. If, a right, if the prayers of a righteous man have great power, is there one more righteous than Jesus? If God hears our prayers, how much more so does the, he hear the prayers of the son who prays for us day and night without ceasing? Doesn't that fill you with hope? whatever you're going through right now, whatever you're struggling with, church, we can pray for one another, we can support one another, but the Son of God is praying for us. Jesus is faithful in praying for us. Who wouldn't want to be in conversation with him? Who wouldn't want to, in their greatest moments and in their darkest moments, spill their life in front of the one who is constantly thinking about you, dwelling on you, asking the Father to move in your life? Is there a safer place? Is there more an encouraging place than to be in conversation with him? Who wouldn't want to call on him when we're sick and suffering? Who wouldn't want to share our joy with him? So friends, we'll end there. In the knowledge that even as James challenges us to a faith that works, he is challenging us ultimately and finally to place our faith and our trust in the one who is praying for us. The one who covers a multitude of sins the one who is faithful and true and who is the author and perfecter of a faith that works. In every season, let's look to him and trust in him. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this chance just to gather as a church, to remember your son, to remember each other as well. Father, we, it's easy when we come to the, the beauty of who Jesus is to be transfixed by him, but the entire message of James has been if we see that, And if we know that, then we must love and serve one another. And God, I pray for us as we come to the close of this series in James. Father, that our hearts would not forget that you have called us to be doers and not hearers only. That you have called us to a faith that works. And so, Father, may we absolutely see Jesus rightly this morning as the one who prays for us and intercedes for us and advocates for us. But may we be moved by that to make an impact to love and serve our neighbors in the seats next to us, to love and serve our neighbors on our street, to pray for them and to seek their welfare, Lord. May we be a people whose faith is in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us for worship today. I hope it was an encouragement to you to hear the great news of the good God who loves us, who prays for us. If there's anything that we can be praying for you this morning, we do, we wanna be a church that... Does not hear only, but also does. And so please don't leave this morning if there's, if there's things that you're struggling with, if there's places where you need prayer. I'm available. We have a prayer team available. We would love to pray with you. But for now, let me leave you with the same words we ended with last week from Hebrews 12 that reminds us of the author and perfecter of our faith. It tells us this Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of a faith that works, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, praying for us now. It's in his name that we go this morning. Amen.